I had attempted last week to get to John 20, 19 through 23, and today we're actually going to get there, and we're going to spend uh, the majority, in fact, all of our time looking at this text from some different angles. So if you would turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, to John 20, verses 19 through 23, otherwise there's a good possibility it's going to be on the screen as well. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has appeared to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene has wanted to cling to Jesus. She sees and recognizes the risen Lord, and immediately when she does, when he calls her name, she grabs hold of him, and he says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet returned to your Father, your God, and my God. But he's going to go return there now. And then we have this scene Jesus' post-resurrection appearance. Beloved, lift up your hearts to hear God's word. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you were with us last week, you will know that I began to make an attempt to answer the question asked by somebody for this You Asked For It series, why is going to church important? And I take it that this person who asked this question is asking quite literally, why is actually getting up on Sunday mornings, getting dressed, getting in our cars, or maybe walking, coming to a building like this one, or to the gathering of God's people, worshiping together, singing praises together, fellowshipping together, and doing all of the things that we typically do when we're together as the body of Christ. Why is doing that important? And more particularly, why is resuming doing that once COVID-19 is all said and done? Why is that going to be incredibly important? I suggested I believe this is an incredibly relevant question, and the more I talk to fellow pastors, as I did this past week, two different groups of them, in fact, the more I am convinced this is an outstandingly important question. Because, friends, many of us pastors are actually wondering, what is the church going to look like once COVID-19 is done? Will people actually want to come back to church Or will some say, staying at home on Sunday mornings has been so wonderful? Or will others in the intervening time have perhaps slipped away in an apathetic mode and decided that they don't need church anymore? That Jesus is just all right for me, and it can be just me and Jesus, and I don't have much need for that church anymore. Some of us are seriously worried about what's going to happen to the church once it's all said and done. Is going to church like we have traditionally done for 2,000 years actually that important? 
According to the New Testament, the answer is unequivocal. Yes, it's important. When we ask the question why, however, it becomes more difficult because there's not one answer in the New Testament or in Scripture, but there are several answers. There's a multiplicity of answers. There's answers within those answers. There's like a Russian doll of answers. So what I attempted to do last week in beginning to answer this question was to give three overarching reasons or three big reasons why it is indeed important to go to church. And I only got to the first two of them. Today we'll get to the third to recap very briefly, and I'm not going to re-preach the message, but to recap very briefly, we said going to church is important first and foremost because when we are united to Christ, we are drawn by the triune God into a new space and a new time, which is to say we are given the identity as people who live in a new space, that is, we are citizens of heaven, and we exist eschatologically, as the scholars love to say, in a new time, which is the time of the resurrection. Going to church is important because when we come into this away from other places place, this separated place, and when we worship God together, we're not only reminded about our fundamental identity in Christ, but we are strengthened in that identity. So that's the first reason. And then the second reason we said is because of mission. Going to church, which is to say gathering together as the redeemed people of God, as the followers of Jesus, is a fundamentally missional activity. As Paul will say in Galatians, the gospel is that God has fulfilled the promises to Abraham. And as I suggested last week, the promise to Abraham in part, was essentially that Abraham was going to reverse the curse of Babel, where the nations of the world are scattered into the world in disunity, destined for warring, bloodshed, and chaos. In Abraham, the nations of the world are going to be reunited under the one God. They're going to be reconciled under the one God by the praise and worship of the true God. This happened at the cross of Christ where all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can receive the gift of forgiveness. And then we extend that gift of forgiveness together, which is embodied in the church where we live as the reconciled people of God. It's fundamentally missional. It is an explosive witness to the world simply when we gather together as the people of God. Our gathering is mission. So we must not give it up. The third reason, and the reason we're going to look at today, and I think this is probably the biggest Russian doll, if you will, within which all the other Russian dolls fit. The reason the author of the Gospel of John will tell us it's critically important for us to go to church, which is to say to gather together as the people of God, is because of this. The church, the gathered people of God, are now with the ascension of Jesus, the locus of God's presence on earth. The church now with the ascension of Jesus are the locus of God's presence on earth. This is not to say that God is not present elsewhere in the world in a general sense. It's to say that God is present in the gathering of his people 
in a special way. There's the manifest presence of God when the people of God gather together in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what John is getting on about in our text this morning. Now, it may not be immediately apparent to us that this is what John is on about in the text before us this morning. Because it actually doesn't really look like that's what John's on about in our text, does it? But trust me that John is on about making this point in our text. The first thing that I want to do this morning here is simply demonstrate to you that John is making this point. That the gathered people of God are the locusts now of God's presence on earth in a very special way, so that we would say it like this. If people want to come and experience the presence of God in a way that is tangible, in a way that you can't experience it anywhere else, what we would say to them is then come to church. Come to where the faithful, true disciples of Jesus are actually meeting. There can you enter into the presence of God, the glory of God, which is the manifest presence of God. Now, how do we see this going on in John? Well, two bits of background information are very helpful for us here. Two bits of background information. First, a little survey of the Old Testament when it comes to this theme of presence. And then a little survey of everything that transpires. Not every, I won't talk about everything, don't worry. In John's Gospel, before we get to the passage we read for today, when it comes to this theme of God's presence. So first, a little survey of the Old Testament. Presence the Old Testament is positively obsessed with the theme of presence. Immediately in Genesis 1 verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters. God is present in a very, very general way. And then God speaks and the creation comes about. In Genesis chapter 2, God places humanity in a place where they do experience and will experience the immediate presence of God. As God walks in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve are also able to walk with God in the cool of the day. But Adam and Eve, when they rebel against God's word, are ejected from the Garden of Eden, which is to say that they are ejected from that place where they were able on earth to experience the manifest presence of God, the glory of God on earth. It's a problem. The implicit question that arises is, where now can humanity, who was created for relationship with God, who was created to live in the manifest presence of God, where now can humanity go to be in the presence of God in that special way? The answer comes in the middle of Exodus, after God redeems his people, Moses is instructed to build a what? A tabernacle. Moses builds the tabernacle, and as the tabernacle comes to its completion, the narrative comes to its climax. And what is that climax? The climax is when the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And glory in the Old Testament is a picture of the manifest presence of God. It's the presence of God becoming visible in the earthly realm, which is why it looks like a cloud. They can see it. They can kind of touch it. They can kind of taste it. It fills the tabernacle. So if Israel was asked the question, where can we as humanity go and meet with God? They would say, you need to go to the tabernacle. This is where the Shekinah, the glory of God, the presence of God is resident in the earthly realm. It's in our little movable tent, <laughs> the tabernacle. When David 
defeats all his enemies all around. He says to the Lord, I want to build you now a permanent structure, not the movable tent. I want to build you a temple. He says, it's not going to be you, David. It's going to be your son, Solomon. And indeed, Solomon builds the temple. And at the climax of the narrative, after the temple is done, Solomon prays. And once again, the glory of God, which is the manifest, visible presence of God, enters into the temple. If Israel's asked the question, where can we go to be with God in a special way, be into his presence, the answer every Israelite would give is you go to the temple. This is where the glory of God resides in the earthly sphere. This is why when Israel is sent out by God because of their sins out of the land, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, when they're in exile, we see psalm after psalm of the psalmist's yearning, longing to go and be in the presence of God once again, which is to say for them, my heart yearns, my soul burns to, for the courts of the Lord to be in the temple once again. Because God's special presence is in the temple. His glory resides in the temple. In, now, here's, here's something important. In AD 70, okay, this is about 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's a Jewish revolt. The Romans respond harshly. Many of them are killed. And their temple is destroyed, completely destroyed. Once again, the question comes to the Jews, where can we go to be with God? Now that the temple is completely destroyed, where can we go to be with God? The author of the fourth gospel writes after the destruction of the temple. His contemporary Jews are asking the question, where can we go to be with God? And John burns with a passion to teach them and tell them what he has learned in encountering the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to encounter the manifest presence of God on earth now, John says, you have to understand about this Jesus. Because he was the new temple. He was the new tabernacle. He now was the locus, the center point of God's presence on earth. From the beginning to the end of John's gospel, leading into our passage for today, John strives to make this point. He tries to give you an aha moment where you realize this is what's going on. This is why in John chapter 114, when John says famously the word, he's referring to the preexistent Christ, when the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory. Ah, that's a, that's a good word. We've heard that one before. Glory is what fills the tabernacle and it's what fills the temple. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only comes from the Father full of grace and truth. But here's something that we don't get in our English translations. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. You know what the Greek says there, literally? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Here was a little walking, talking tabernacle of God in Jesus. Because John wants us to know the locus point of God's presence on earth was Jesus. This is why at the end of the first chapter of John, when Jesus has met Nicodemus, or not Nicodemus, but Nathaniel, and said that he saw Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree and here is an Israelite without any guile. And Nathaniel says, whoa, you must be the king of Israel. And he says, hi, you think that's something? I tell you what, Nathaniel, and then he speaks to the whole community. It's a plural in the text there. He says, you'll see greater things than this. 
In fact, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That is an allusion to the Jacob story, where Jacob, who has left his father's house, just as Jesus has now, in John's imagination, has left his father's heavenly house, as Jacob left his father's house and was traveling to Laban's place, he lay down one night and he laid his, he laid his head on a stone. And he has a dream of a stairway that reaches into heaven and he sees angels of God ascending and descending on this stairway. And he wakes up and he says, surely God was in this place and I wasn't aware of it. And he names the place Bethel, which is called the house of God. Now what is Jesus saying in jo- at the end of chapter 1 of John? He's saying the place now where God is present is on the Son of Man. The place now that is the doorway to heaven. Heaven is open upon the Son of Man. Because Jesus is the access point or the locus of God's presence on earth. This is why again in chapter 2, when Jesus goes into the temple and he, up, he turns over their tables and gets angry and they ask him, by what authority do you do this? He says, I'll tell you what authority. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. How about that? And they say, it's taken years and years to build this temple. And then John tells us the temple he had spoken about was his soma, his body. This is why as you go through the gospel of John, what you see Jesus doing is principally things that you would find being done or directed towards the temple. Healing and quintessentially forgiveness. Where would the Israelite go if they wanted to experience forgiveness from God? There's only one place you could go to experience forgiveness. You would go to the temple where you would offer your sacrifices and the priest would offer your sacrifices on behalf of your sin and you would experience the forgiveness of sins. This is why in John chapter 17, Jesus offers the high priestly prayer without going into the temple where that prayer would have traditionally taken place because he is the temple. He's the high priest and he is the temple. This is why, and this is so beautiful, in John chapter 19, After Jesus dies and gives up, the text doesn't say gives up his spirit, it says gives up the spirit, right? The presence of God in the temple is now dispelled from Jesus, and when the Roman centurion stabs him in the side, what does the author of the fourth gospel say? What flows out of Jesus? Blood and water gush forth out of Jesus. Why blood and water gushing forth out of the Son of Man? Well, because where in Israel's story would you have seen blood gushing forth continually? Well, that was in the temple. If you read some passages in the Old Testament, you will agree with me that much of it is a bloodbath of sacrifices. And Jesus now is that final sacrifice as John beholds him in the beginning. That is John the Baptist. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here is the one who's going to be the final sacrifice. And we see his blood gushing forth then. But not only blood, but water. Why water? Well, it's because, as Zechariah and Ezekiel teach us, when God moves to restore Israel's fortunes, which is to say, when God moves to inaugurate a new creation, to begin his new age, Ezekiel tells us, and Zechariah, That in that day, the temple will burst forth with living water that will extend out into all the world. Where does that living water come from? It comes from the true temple who is Jesus Christ because he is the true presence of God. 
And then there's a quirk with Mary, which is why I emphasized it before we read the text today. What is going on with Mary? Haven't you ever thought our Lord is not just a little insensitive in this text? Mary sees the one she loves, and she clings to him. And he says, don't cling to me because I haven't yet returned to my God and your God. But go tell the disciples I'm returning there. What's going on? Is Jesus being insensitive? Well, not at all. Again, it's making a point of presence. Mary has encountered the presence of the living God, the manifest glory of God in Christ. And she wants to cling on to it, like any faithful Jew would have wanted to do. And Jesus says, no, Mary, of course you want to abide in the presence of God. Of course you want to stay in my presence forever. But I'm ascending into heaven. So if you want to cling to the presence of God, my body is not the way to do that. The question becomes then, where can the disciples of Jesus go and be in the manifest presence of God? And the answer, beloved, is our text. Because where does Jesus after in John's imagination, his ascending into the Father, John does something interesting. He kind of collapses Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into one, which is why you don't have a distinct ascension in the fourth gospel. But he had just told us he's returning to the Father. And though it is the same day, we're to understand that Jesus is in an ascended state. Where does the ascended Lord make his appearance? He makes his appearance in the midst of of his gathered people. Where is Jesus present today? Where can we go to experience the manifest presence of God? John is saying, if you want to experience that, you got to go to church. <laughs> That's where God is present in a special way in the world today. And just a substantiation of this point, ask yourself a couple of questions from our text. Where is it now that you can go to see proof that Jesus is the final sacrifice? It's in the midst of his people that Jesus shows his hands and he shows his feet. It's in the midst of his new temple, of course, that you can go and see that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Where is it, according to John, that you can go now and see something that is filled with the Shekinah glory of God, which is the Spirit of God, which is the presence of God? You notice it in our text? Jesus breathes on the disciples, saying, receive the Holy Spirit. And there is a link, a direct link in Scripture with the breath of God and the glory of God and the Spirit of God, which is the manifest presence of God. The manifest presence of God now is in His gathered disciples. Where is it now that you can go and receive the forgiveness of sins or have it withheld? It was only in the temple that you could go to receive the forgiveness of sins on the basis of sacrifice. Where is that now? Now, according to our text, such a difficult one, right? But this brings it into focus. Why would Jesus give his church the power to forgive sins or not to forgive them? Because the church is the new temple of God on earth. Forgiveness must happen from the temple of God in the place where he is manifestly present. 
So why is our gathering together as the people of God important, friends? Why will, when we can, once again, if we are able, once again, going to church, why is that going to be so important? It's because when we, the disciples of Jesus, gather together, we are, according to John, the locus of God's presence on earth. And you know, some of us might say, but we don't always experience that in church. Well, that's true. But simply because we don't recognize something is true doesn't mean it is not nonetheless true. And furthermore, I think John intimates in this text some of the times when we can actually enter into that presence. Sometimes when we are awakened by the reality of the presence of God. In times of crisis, for example, notice in our text that they're gathered together in fear of the Jews. They're gathering together in dependence upon God, and in that moment of crisis, it's then that Jesus shows up. This isn't a novelty of this text. In Acts chapter 3, the same thing happens after John and Peter, Peter and John, have been severely flogged by the Jewish authorities. They go back to the community. The community prays passionately to the Lord. And as they are praying in dependence upon God, God shows up. The ground shakes. It's the manifest presence of God. I think we can also see it in times where we witness self-sacrifice. When people in the body assume the stigmata of Jesus in various ways. It doesn't have to be in flashy ways. I've had it several times at this church, actually in funerals. Um, It can be a time of crisis and experience it then, but then it can also be a time where so many people in this body of Christ gather together to selflessly serve, and I've seen it with so many of the ladies serving lunch, giving of their time, and uh, in, in the span of four years, when I did over 30 funerals, boy, I felt it, and it was overwhelming, and you experience the presence of God when people are just giving of themselves sac- self-sacrificially. It's powerful. I think we also see it then in times where there's forgiveness. Either we hear a word of forgiveness spoken to us, and it just passes through, and your hair can stand on end by a recognition again of the love of God, or when you see two people who've been at odds with each other coming together and saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry I failed you, and owning their own stuff, and the other person owning their own stuff. As Neil Plantinga once said, there is Good Friday and Easter in a true apology and in forgiveness. God shows up when we forgive one another, when the church does what it ought to do. God shows up too, I should add, more severely when the church withholds forgiveness because there's not a demonstration of true repentance. That's harder. But in any event, folks, um, why is church important? It's because here, when we gather together, we become the locus of God's presence on earth in a very special way. And just the final question to meditate on then, I think, is, so what do we do now, right? We're, thank God we're able to do this. I think this is better than nothing. But what do we do now when, by and large, many of us don't feel we can go to church 
Um, and maybe they'll even retract our ability to meet in 50s. Man, if this, th if this thing spikes again, they may very, very well do that. And we're going to be going back to pre-recording services. The upshot of that is I get weekends again. But um, the downside, of course, is that we can't meet together as a whole. But what do we do in this intervening time when we can't meet together? Well, I think there's three things we do. I think, number one, we acknowledge our situation. We are in a compromised position as the people of God. We really, really, really need to know this. I have verified this over and again in many conversations I have had with many people. There is a feeling of spiritual lethargy. There is a feeling of spiritual tiredness. There is an increased inability to pray. We feel like we are in a wilderness together and there is a rising apathy. I was talking to one pastor this past week and he said, that in his own church, he has noticed that many people aren't doing anything anymore. And he is seriously afraid that when it comes back to coming back to church, that 50% of his church will probably not come back. We are under attack from the evil one during this time. He knows that we're prime targets and he's going to come after us. That's the first thing. Just acknowledge the fact we are in a vulnerable position. We are not in a position of strength when we're not meeting together. The ideal position is to be able to meet together. Talk to shut-ins who have been in that position for a long time. They will tell you, as my Oma told me, she couldn't go to church for 10 years. It was very hard to keep her spiritual vitality. It was incredibly hard. Because the ideal is to be able to meet together as the people of God. And as the author of Hebrews says, meet together and keep on encouraging one another until that great day. So just acknowledge we're in a compromised position if the evil one wants to go after us, it's going to be in this time. And he's more powerful than we are. We are not his equal, as Martin Luther former once said. We are no match for the evil one. It's been around a lot longer than we have. That's the first thing. Then the second thing is this. Just to repeat from last week, I can't repeat it enough. Make sure that at this time, whatever the size of your bubble is going to be, make sure that you are proactively engaging in Christian fellowship. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am also. It doesn't have to be a large gathering. Be in Christian fellowship. And maybe in particular, sing together. Praise God together with songs, spiritual songs and hymns. Around the dinner table, families, maybe around the dinner table, have one song that you sing together as a family, or two, do it every night. Sustain your family by the singing the praises of God. Why am I emphasizing this? Why do I think this is so important? Because you know what? When the enemy is too big for us, when we are not as equal, when we don't stand a chance to sustain ourselves, one of the things that Scripture teaches us is a weapon that we can behold, is to take up the praise of God on our lips, to sing. Let me read from you a not well-known, in fact, a very um, uncommonly known text in 2 Chronicles 20. Israel is facing an enemy that is bigger than them. There's not a possibility that they can face them in battle. They know they are toast. They're in a vulnerable position. So they get down on their knees and they pray. A prophet stands up and he says, the battle belongs to the Lord. You're going to go out there. You're going to be shaking in your boots. 
But look at the command. Look what happens here. As they're marching into a battle, they cannot win. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise Him for the splendor of His holiness as they went out at the head of the army. The head of the army is a singing band. And they sang, Give thanks to the Lord for His love endures forever. As they began to sing in praise, oh, they only just got started. As they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. Remember that text of the New Testament? Sing to one another with hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. Maybe that's not only because it's aesthetically pleasing. Maybe not only because God loves to hear the praises of his people, but maybe because it fortifies us for the battle that we find ourselves in. And now, in a profound way. Finally, as Paul says, we need to put on the full armor of God. Just going to read you this text as a reminder as we prepare to sing our next song. Finally, Paul says in Ephesians 6 and 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray. Yes, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. May God give us the strength and sustain us at this time. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people say, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.